All right, gang, I want you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, please, at the very beginning of your Bible. That ought to be super easy to find. Go to Genesis chapter 2. In a minute, we're going to read from verse 22. Uh, Several weeks ago, we introduced a brand new series based upon questions people have concerning the Bible. We're calling it Good Question. You know, if you spend any time reading your Bible, any time at all, you're going to have questions. I don't care how long you've been trying to follow Jesus. I don't care how old you are whether you grew up in the church or not, if you study this book, eventually you're going to come across events and circumstances and statements that that are puzzling. You're going to have questions. And questions are good because there is no other book that can come close to your Bible concerning ancient history, its accuracy, its detail, Concerning people and places and civilizations and events and even geography, the Bible is unmatched by all others. So every week, Tyler and I are trying to answer two of the most commonly asked questions about the Bible. In week one, we, asked, we answered question number one, is the Bible really God's word? And question number two, which version or translation of the, of the Bible is best? Now, if you weren't here for that Sunday and you didn't get the answers to those questions, you can go on our website or you can use our app and you can go to the media tab and you can pull down sermons and you can look it up, watch them, or you could listen to them as well. Last time in week two, we answered questions three and four. Is the biblical creation story literal? And question four, can we take Genesis, the book, seriously? Today, we're going to answer questions five and six. And I got to be honest with you, Tyler and I have not been looking forward to these two questions. When we put this series together and I gave the questions to Tyler, we looked at week three and we thought, "Mm." here are the questions. Does the Old Testament permit polygamy? And question number six, did the Old Testament require a woman to marry her rapist? The answer to both is absolutely no. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. I'm going to deal with the polygamy side, question number five. It is not surprising that many people, when they read specifically the Old Testament law, Exodus, the first telling or explanation of the law, and Deuteronomy, the second explanation or retelling of the law, many assume that God permitted polygamy in the Old Testament. These two questions are favorites among skeptics, and that's why we chose to include them in this series. I've spoken to more than a few skeptics who always point to Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, polygamy and rape, and they say to me, how could you ever believe a book that embraces such despicable, immoral practices? Today, when we're done, I hope and pray that you see this is not the case. And yet there are examples in your Bible of good and godly men with multiple wives. Uh, Just to name a few, Abraham his grandson Jacob, David, and then his son Solomon. So if you look at that list from the patriarchs of the Jewish faith and Christian faith for that matter, Abraham and Jacob, to the most celebrated, revered kings Israel has ever known, David and Solomon, these men all were married to multiple wives. So in order to attack this question, we have to begin at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. God's design and God's plan for marriage from the very beginning was one man and one woman for life. Look with me at Genesis 2 and verse 22. 
Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he has taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. Now, I need to stop there and tell you that this is where our feminist brothers and sisters lose interest in the biblical account of creation. What do you mean God created man first and then created woman and gave her to the man? The very idea insults the intelligence of a modern-day feminist. But that's not what the narrative is teaching. I'll show you that in a minute. The point of Genesis chapter 2 is the realization that God's plan from the very beginning was to create male and female and join them together, both equal both dignified, both created in the image of God, but when you put them together, you've really got something. In fact, if you are a woman and you are skeptical of the word of God, I invite you to investigate questions like this because, hear me, it is only Christianity of all other world religions that dignifies women and treats them equal as men. Only Christianity. From the very beginning, this was a brand new teaching and perspective in ancient times. God places women right alongside men, created equal, distinct, and yet different. So keep reading. Verse 23, the man then said, and by the way, the word said could be translated sang, sang, because what follows is actually an ancient form of Hebrew poetry put to music. Okay, imagine this for a moment. That's why in your Bible, the next verse is indented. It's because Adam burst into singing when he saw a woman. Adam burst into song. Now, every man, every husband in the room today can relate to this because we all burst into song the moment we saw you, right? Am I the only one? All right, so Adam began singing. Here, watch this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Do you hear the rhythm of the text? This is an ancient form of poetry in the language of Hebrew. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Interesting two words, woman and man, or man and woman. The Hebrew word for man is ish, I-S-H, ish. The Hebrew word for woman is ish-shah, ish-shah, I-S-H, S-H-A, not I-S-H-A, but I-S-H-S-H-A. Ish man, ish shah woman. The very Hebrew wordplay of the two words dignifies the woman as equal to the man. Woman is everything man is and yet different, okay? Keep reading. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man, verse 24. That is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one Flesh. That is why, since God created from the very beginning one man and one woman to be joined together for life, since that was God's original design, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united or joined with his wife. That's marriage as God designed it. From the very beginning, that is the plan, that's the picture and purpose of marriage. There's not one hint of anything other than monogamy in the original creation of the marriage union. What you've got is one man, one woman, becoming one together, growing together for life. From that simple passage, there are four principles, and I've got to lay these on you before we move on. Number one, that passage speaks of independence. The man leaves his father and mother, the woman leaves her father and mother, and they begin their own family. Incidentally, you may not realize this, but you began a family when you married your spouse. You see, family doesn't wait to arrive when you have a child. Family begins when a husband marries a wife. 
okay? It's independence. If you're 35 and 36 years old and your mom is still solving your problems, you've got a problem. Because marriage was designed to be independent of the family, we begin a new family. It also speaks of exclusivity, exclusivity. Marriage is between one man and one woman, period. Again, no hint of anything other than monogamy, no hint of polygamy, no hint of homosexuality, simply one man and one woman married for life. This is God's design from the very beginning. Number three, it speaks of permanence. The Bible said in verse 24, they are united or they're joined together. Those are big words. They're not Velcroed together so they can easily become unattached, and then go stick themselves to someone else. That's not God's design. They are united. They are bonded. Your translation may read joined together, like a dovetail joint in a woodworker's workshop. That joint is strong with or without glue. It can hold the piece of furniture together. So it speaks of permanence. And then the last thing it speaks of is unity. And the two will become one flesh. Growing together as one in marriage, that's been God's design all along. So if the picture of marriage and monogamy is so clear from the very beginning, then why are there examples of polygamy in the Bible? Well, basically, there are only five passages that give people trouble as they read through them. Again, a couple of them come from the book of Exodus, the first telling of the law. A couple of them come from the book of Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to examine the chapter uh, 21 of the book of Exodus. It is perhaps the most famous and the most commonly asked. Uh, And then I'm going to ignore the other four simply because of sake of time, because they're all basically the same. And you can apply the same tools of reasoning and Bible study guidelines to the other four chapters or the other four passages. You're probably familiar with Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, God through Moses delivers the foundation of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. Five of those commandments govern my response and behavior to God, and five of those commandments govern my relationship and response to others. Jesus in the New Testament boiled the entire Old Testament law down to two commandments, love God and love others. It's in chapter 21 that the law begins to get specific. We're not just talking about thou shalt not steal or thou should keep the Sabbath day holy. Now we're getting very specific about certain rules and regulations. Look at chapter 21 and verse 7. Exodus 21 verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, stop. Moses already has my attention because that's despicable to me. It is reprehensible to me to imagine a father selling his daughter to another as a servant. Let me remind you of something. In this ancient culture, which was 3,600 years ago, 3,600 years ago, it was commonplace in an arranged marriage for fathers to exchange children or arrange the marriage, and a payment was given to the father of the bride. Today, in other parts of the world, arranged marriages are still commonplace, and dowries or payment for a bride is still socially acceptable and 100% agreeable to both parties. That's what's happening here. Follow me. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she's not to go free as male servants do. So let's say that I owed you a lot of money. One of the ways we could resolve that debt is for me to give you my daughter and you could make her your wife, or as you'll see in a moment, you could hold on to her for a while keep her as part of the family, and she could marry your son. 
Keep reading verse 8. If, however, she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. Okay? This is the theme of this passage of this command. The freedom of the young woman who's not yet marital age is what's at stake. God, in a very pagan culture, because remember, Israel had no culture of its own at this time. The Hebrews had no identity of their own. For 400 years, they've been subject to Egyptian law and custom and culture. They're far more Egyptian at this time than they are Hebrew. The purpose of the law was to set them apart, make them distinct from the pagan nations that surrounded them. So what we're dealing with here is not polygamy or even slavery. What we're dealing with here is how is God going to work within a pagan culture and separate his people and make them distinct from the pagan nations around him? One of the ways he's going to do this is to make sure women are not treated as personal property. That's why, again, look at verse... Nine, let me find my place. Look at verse nine, uh, excuse me, verse eight. If she does not please the master who selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. She can go somewhere else. He has no right to sell her to foreigners, which was commonplace in this practice or in this culture, because he has broken faith with her. Now, follow me here. 3,600 years ago, there wasn't a man alive who cared about breaking faith with a woman because women were not equal to men. Just like in other parts of the world, even to this day, women are considered lesser than men. What God, through his law, is trying to accomplish here is that a woman's rights be held up in, with respect. That's what's happening. Again, he must Let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. You cannot treat a woman as any lesser value than you would treat a man. Verse 9, if he selects her for his son, okay, what's happened? He's decided he doesn't want to marry her. This isn't going to work out. If he selects her then for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. That was huge. This woman would now be treated like blood kin, This woman would now be treated like one of the family. Now here comes verse 10. This is the verse that everybody likes to point to. Here it comes. If he marries another woman, he being the master or the son, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. Now, here's what's interesting. Interesting. When you read this passage at first glance, it sounds like he took this young woman to be his wife, but then decided he didn't like her very much. So then he married another wife, another wife in addition to the first wife. Or if he didn't like her at the outset and he reserved her for his his son, his son did the same thing. His son took her as his wife and then decided, I don't want you as a wife and married another woman. But that's not the right another. You and I can use the word another in two different ways. I can say to you, I love Oreos. I've only had one. Let me have another. That means another in addition to the first one I had. Or we can use the word another to mean another instead of. I go to the car dealer on Monday. I say, I want that car. I picked it out. I changed my mind Monday evening. I come back Tuesday morning and I say, I don't want that car anymore. I want another, another instead. That's the word that's being used here. Both the husband or the, excuse me, both the father or the master and his son, neither one are married at this time. Neither one are married. 
Okay, So what God is doing in the text and the reason the law is given is God is looking out for the rights of that young woman. It gets even more clear in verse 11. Look, if he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Freedom is what's at stake here. In fact, that's the big idea. I'll put it on the screen. This law was written to protect the rights and dignity of a young woman given in marriage as payment for a debt. Working within that broken culture, a culture that the Egyptians, the pagans, and now the Jews had created, not God. God didn't create that culture. God delivers a law to protect the rights of an unmarried young woman. Now, the other four passages are almost identical. At least the thought process for understanding them is identical. So as I quit before Tyler comes up here, I'm going to give you at least three principles to govern your Bible study. Here's principle number one. A biblical account or record is never an endorsement. A biblical account or record is never an endorsement of the behavior or the activity. Just because there is evidence from good and godly men in your Old Testament of multiple wives or polygamy, that is not God's stamp or seal of approval on polygamy. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Just because there are accounts of lying and theft and adultery and murder, that's not an endorsement of those behaviors. Remember, God gave us the law. He gave the Hebrews the law to separate them, to isolate them, to give them distinction distinction from their pagan counterparts. A biblical counter record is never an endorsement. Here's number two. Each diversion from God's plan by godly men led to significant problems. Significant problems. Just the four examples I gave you a moment ago. Remember Abraham? Abraham had two sons, one by Hagar and one by his wife Sarah. Sarah bore him Isaac, who became the father of the Jewish people. Hagar bore him Ishmael, which became the father of the Arab people. How's that relationship Jew and Arab been for the last few thousand years? Not too good, right? That's because Abraham disobeyed and went against the plan of God. David is an exceptional example. By the time David is old and gray, when the king should be thinking about retiring and kicking, up, kicking back his feet, that's when his life started falling apart. You see, because of David's multiple wives and many children by the multiple wives, I don't know if you know this story, one of his daughters was raped by his, her half-brother, and his half-brother murdered him. You talk about drama. You talk about heartache and hardship. This is all happening because God, uh, David refused to obey God's design for marriage. Now, here's number three, and it's terribly important. Old Testament laws, such as Exodus 21, were enacted in pagan cultures. I tried to allude to this as we were working our way through the passage. You see, God's commandments were going to work themselves out, not in a perfect culture, not in a culture God created. They were going to work themselves out in a culture that man created, that we create. So God gives a law to take care of a circumstance or a situation that it only exists because of the culture that man has created at the time. In a culture where servitude and daughter selling was totally acceptable, God set up laws to govern his people and to protect those women. Look, the short answer to this question is number four. There is no question. There is no question. God always intended marriage to be monogamous. Now, before I quit, let me just give you a brief illustration of this principle. Let's say that Moses showed up today 
And Moses gave us a new law, an additional law regarding divorce and remarriage. Okay? He came in with his big tablet and he explained the law. He read it aloud in our service. That law to us would be brand spanking new, right? Now, we all know, according to the Bible, that divorce and remarriage is never God's best plan. It's never his best. It's never God's plan A. God's best plan is for one woman to marry one man and they remain together for life. Any deviation from that righteous, perfect standard is missing the mark. No matter how understandable we feel our divorce was, I don't know your circumstances, you don't know my circumstances, no matter how obvious it should be to everyone around that, well, that was the best thing at the time, none of that matters. According to this book, when a man and woman and their marriage fails, we've missed the mark, simple as it can be. However, in today's modern 2022 culture, divorce and remarriage is commonplace. It's totally 100% acceptable. Therefore, the new law, new to us, that Moses would deliver would have to take that into account. It would have to operate within the culture that we have created. Now, let's fast forward 1,000 years into the future. And someone now is studying our current, but they would consider it ancient civilization. And they come across this law. It might be very easy for them to assume based upon the law that was written in our current culture, but is now antiquated to them, that somehow God approves of divorce and remarriage. And we know that's not the case. That's what's going on in Exodus chapter 21. So the answer to the question, does the Old Testament permit or endorse polygamy, is absolutely, categorically, undeniably, no. Have you found Jesus yet? No. I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, so. <laughs> That's all these cripples down at the VA. That's all they ever talk about. Jesus this, and Jesus that. <laughs> Have I found Jesus? They even had a priest come and talk to me. He said, God is listening, but I have to help myself. Now, if I accept Jesus into my heart, I'll get to walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear what I said? Walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Well, kiss my crippled ass. God is listening. What a crock. I'm going to heaven, Lieutenant Dane. Oh? Huh. Well. Before you go, why don't you get your ass down to the corner and get us another bottle of Ripple? Yes, sir. Life's like a box of chocolates. <clears throat> Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Pastor Mike ended in Exodus, and we're going to go back there in a few minutes. Uh, just, it's just a couple of books. Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book in your Old Testament, and we'll get started. This is kind of a testy topic. Pastor Mike's already kind of told you. When I was very, very early in ministry, 
I had a, a mentor of mine tell me that there are a couple of topics that young ministers need to avoid speaking on. He said, one day you're going to study the book of Revelation. Before you stand in front of a church and talk about it, you need to wait five years. This topic is no different. But, as Pastor Mike told you guys, when we looked at these, these weeks of, of things, he didn't tell you the entire story. I, we looked at week one, and I was like, ooh, 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 I want that one. And he said, fine, you take it, because I want the other one. And he knew what week three looked like, and we've staggered these things. And here I stand with not much of a choice. Um, with that, this is a topic that atheists and skeptics and Bible critics alike use to consider Christianity backwards and cruel and misogynistic and all kinds of other words, kind of like Lieutenant Dan. Somebody heard something, read something, saw something, and they have made their mind up what they will believe about Christianity forever because of that. Before I go much further, I want to take a moment and say, considering the topic, I don't take it lightly, and I realize that in a room of this size, the odds of someone encountering this situation, whether personal or relationally, or having encountered bad teaching in a church, are high. I want to tell you I'm sorry. Again, I take this I take this seriously. With that, we know what the question is. Does the Old Testament require a woman to marry her rapist? The answer is absolutely, of course not. Any suggestion of such is a sad misunderstanding and potentially an abuse of Scripture. What we're going to find is this is a word study. It's a misunderstanding of one word. So what we're going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to take you guys through a lesson. It's a lesson in Bible study more than, more than a message. It's a word study. I'm going to show you that that word rape is probably a bad translation. So I'm going to read again Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 28 and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her. There's the word. Right off the bat, we, it, it's there. That's a harsh word. We know what the word means. It's a forced sexual encounter. But again, I'm, I'm standing and going to say this may not be the best translation. I'll keep going. I'll explain that to you in just a few moments. But he rapes her and they are discovered. He shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. This is the punishment. It does not seem to fit. As we keep going through this passage, we're going to look at it in, in that word, and we're going to look at it in, at large, and we're going to see that that punishment matters. So make a mental note right here, rape and 50 shekels. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. So the next thing is a little bit of etymology. Etymology is just a big scientific study word for word study is all it is. We're going to look at the word tophus. 
That word is the word that was translated by, by some translators ultimately as rape. If I turn around and, and show you guys this, you've got the, the top blue there under the actual word is how many times it was used in the Bible. It's 65. Then you've got the, the Strong's translation of that word. This is what the preponderance of this, this word means in the Bible. You've got take. Take in, handle, hold, catch, surprise, and several miscellaneous instances. Especially with words like handle and hold. And hold. Um, th- there's a degree of a sexual encounter that involves some hands. I'm not going any further than that, but we're going to work through this. You've got an outline of biblical, biblical usage that uses a lot of those words, and some of those words do um, imply some force being involved. That's probably why some translators went to the word rape. But again, if we break this down and look at it in its entirety, we're going to see primarily the punishment doesn't fit the crime, so we need to look at it meaning Something different. What we have is a situation where a young man has enticed or flattered or persuaded a young woman. It's an extreme example of, but baby, if you love me, you'll do it. Seduction, absolutely. Rape, no, that's not it. Here's what I want to do next. I want to show you these passages, three wide You've got on the left the one I just read out of NIV. You've got Christian Standard and Holloman Christian Standard Bible. that They translated that word almost identically. I've highlighted it in red. In the middle, you've got King James with American Standard and the World, World English Bible translations. They say instead of rapes, lay hold on her and lie with her. Again, lay hold on, that's more appropriate of a terminology, a descriptive of that type of encounter. And then NASB, English Standard, New King James, International Standard, and North American Bible all say seizes her and has sexual relations with her. The primary point of that particular picture is rapes is used by the least of the popular translation of the the English translations, it is used the least number of times. If someone is is keying up on this word, it's literally because they're keyed up on it. They're wanting to prove a point. They're wanting to have an argument, and it's all about a translation and probably a mistranslation. So let's break this down. I'm going to go all the way back to verse 22. So Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, and I'm going to show you four different situations. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, here's situation number one. A man and somebody's wife, and they're sleeping together. Both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So both are being punished. Here you have a consensual encounter between a man and somebody's wife. This is adultery, and they're both punished. Here's situation number two. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her. Again, you've got a man 
and, and somebody who's not married yet, but they're, they're, they're engaged, a, a man and a woman who's engaged, and they sleep together, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. Both of them are being punished. This is a consensual encounter. It's another seen as adultery or fornication, one of those types of situations, but it's consensual. We know that because as we keep reading, it says you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she is in a town and did not scream. Now look, I know that there are situations of four sexual encounters where a person, a woman is being violated and screaming, fighting back is not an option. We know that. But in what Moses is trying to do is, is, is capture that there's a degree of resistance. There's something going on here where this lady does not want to participate in that. That did not happen. The assumption that a lady's going to fight back in a rape situation did not happen in this town. The young woman, because she was in town where somebody would have heard her, somebody would have been able to come help her, and she did not scream for help. And the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge evil from among you. Here's a third situation. But if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her. So we're, we're using that same word, rape. That's the, the action. The situation is a man and another engaged woman, but this time they're out in the country, and we're going to see that this plays out differently. Only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She's committed no sin, deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country, and though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. That's definitely the case of a rape. That's definitely the case of a forced sexual encounter. A man, a, a, a young woman who's engaged, and if she screamed to the top of her lungs, if she fought all she could, there's nobody to help her. And we have... Now, the fourth situation that we've already read it once, but I want to read it again. I asked you guys to take a mental image of the, of the situation and the punishment. Listen to this. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they're discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives Pay your father 50 shekels and marry her. We just read a passage that if, if he raped her, he must die. And now we're saying if he rapes her, but just because she's not engaged, he has to marry her? That No, that makes absolutely no sense. It, what is happening here is that we're assuming that the, the, the young lady was willing. There was no scream. The scream was not mentioned. The last two situations, the, there, there was a scream mentioned. In this one, there is none. It's an entirely different situation. The penalty in this case is actually to protect the woman. Now look, I realize that might be hard to hear. I realize that given the situation... But in that culture, some 3,000 years ago, a, a, a young lady of marriable age who has been with a man 
is likely not going to find a husband and the family situation was needed for protection and provision and those sorts of things in that time. What we have is a sly young man and a woman who fell for him. We've got the good girl, the bad guy, the bad young man. The consequence we have here is to prevent this frisky young man from taking advantage of a willing but naive young lady. I want to give you one more thing for proof. Pastor Mike told you during his portion of the message that Exodus and Deuteronomy, you have the first reading and the second reading of, of the law. That There's a lot of parallels in them. If you turn to Exodus chapter 22 and read verse 16... We're going to read a parallel passage here. It says that if a man seduces a virgin who's not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. This is the exact same situation. A man, a virgin, pay the bride price, that's 50 shekels, and she shall be his wife. It's the exact same situation. But this time they use the word seduces. As the, the, Moses was explaining this, the translators of, of NIV and Holloman and, and Christian Standard, they just focused on a different word, and now skeptics have this thing to tee off on. Seduces is what's going on. The, the idea of, of being deceived, being enticed, being persuaded or coaxed, being led astray, suckered, whatever it is, this young man had one thing on his mind. Rodney Atkins wrote a song about it. In the second verse, he says, He's scared to death one day my daughter is going to find the same teenage boy I used to be that has one thing on his mind. In South Georgia in 2022, that young man meets an angry dad with a shotgun. 3,000 years ago, that young man meets an angry dad who says, You violated my daughter. She can't have a husband now. Nobody will take her. You're going to make this right. That's what's going on here. It's, it's, a, it's a warning to would-be frisky young men. Here's what I want you to remember. Does the Old Testament require a woman to marry her rapist? No, absolutely not. Somebody who's demanding such a thing is looking for a reason to be critical. They may not have studied well. They may have been taught poorly. Whatever that situation is, the answer is no. This is why we do plus one. This is why personal study is important because if you hear something, you see something, and it causes you to question, we want to empower you to be able to do, do some digging, do some research, and get this answer on your own and see it's just a translation issue. It's one word that a, tr- a group of translators picked this one word to use, and it's not the best. It's why important that you study. Some of the resources we use here, we suggest to you, could help you with this kind of thing. Right now, media is kind of like Netflix for Bible study. We get you signed up on it. You can study anything you want. Blue Letter Bible. Actually, one of the pictures that I showed you guys that had the word and all the the different usage, that's a screenshot from Blue Letter Letter Bible. It's a tool that Pastor Mike and I use very often. And if you want to know what a word really means, you can... Pick that word out of, out of an interlinear Bible and study it. Figure out what it really means. Know for yourself. And then our staff, we are here to help you. 
That's, it's our job. It's, our, it's, it's, why, it's what God has, has... We can't do anything else. This is where we're supposed to be. We want to help you guys understand and engage your faith walk in such a way that when these kind of questions come up, you recognize you can trust God and you can trust His Word. Can we pray? Our Father, we are indeed grateful for your word. We're grateful that it stood the test of time and that despite people um, attacking it, it still stands, God. Lord, that we can use it in our lives, that it, it can shape the way we live, it can shape the way we do things. God, and it can shape our relationship with you because that's what it's about, Lord. I pray that, that we all engage you authentically. Despite the questions we have, Lord, I pray that your spirit stirs us to dig in and read and learn so that we can settle disputes like this, man disputes like this, and that we can follow you well. It's in the name of your son that we pray this. Amen. Hey, Grace Community Church, we hope you have a fabulous week. It's been good to see you, and we'll see you next time.